The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Tonight we're just gonna we're gonna do a Bible study, um, and really what I'm doing tonight, <coughs> we're starting. I want to start a new ser- this, a sermon series. It's not a hard sermon series to figure out. Or it's on the Book of Matthew, and we're gonna walk through the Book of Matthew. We shouldn't miss much of it at all. Okay, I mean that's what I'll tell you. So, if, in your private reading, if you or you want to listen on your phone or something. Just if you want to listen to a chapter, Matthew's not that long of a book. I, one of those things that I'll do, even turn it on, and uh, I'll turn it on and let it and let it play. But there's a lot of little things that we're what, I, what I'm going to try to bring out. And as everything else we've done, I, one of the things I want us to do is, uh, well, let's look at this. Uh, I want us to be able to look at scripture with the attitude of, one, know the context of what's being talked about. Obviously, every time we want to know the context. But also, we want to look at its immediate application. The immediate application of the time. And I want to, And the third thing I want to try to do is, how can we apply this now? Now, I will share with you this. Next week, we're going to talk about the actual birth of Christ. And as we look at the birth of Christ... Uh, we're going to talk about all the circumstances surrounding that, along with Herod and so forth. And I'm going to bring it forward. So you probably can talk, know what I'm going to, the subject I'll talk about regarding uh, Herod and, and, and what he did uh, with the birth of Jesus, uh, this king. Of course, the, the Magi or the wise men or whatever you want to call them, which we'll talk about a little bit next week. They were coming and that's how he found out. So... As we look at this, Matthew is is one of the synoptic gospels, um, and it starts. So, do you know what the word synoptic means? There's a word in. There's a part of the word that should help you know what it means. Synoptic is if you hear the the word, it's like a synonym. It's something that is like the Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. They basically go through the same um, chronological order. There might be little things, flares here and there that each of the each of them saw and each of them portrayed. But let me rem- are, are they the way the the way it came along? But chronologically, it's basically in the same order. Okay, John is different. Although John has a, the book of John has several of the same themes. It starts. With creation, actually. So, um, I always go back to uh, my good friend Jason Garwood. He's been preaching through the Book of John, and I listen. I love listening to it. But one of the things is is he when he brought out um, the creation order when you look at John one and looked at how it fits with Genesis and brings it forward. Beautiful, beautiful sermon series. He's I think they just did week twenty or twenty one. <laughs> On the, on the Gospel of John. But we'll be on Matthew. And it starts with... The book of Matthew starts with the genealogy of Christ. And often we do skip over... A lot of people, they skip over the genealogies. Okay? Because... And let's say why. Because they're long. 
right? And the names are hard to pronounce, and they're often, they hold little application. But here for today, they do hold some interesting truths, and that's what we're going to focus on. There's honestly, if you look at your notes, there's truly two points with some subpoints, and I'm going to do some teaching today more than preaching. If y'all don't mind, I'll kind of give you a, a nice foundation to understand the, uh, the, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. So we're going to start off with reading Matthew chapter 1. If you'll follow along, with, if you have a chance, like I said, uh, bring your Bible, look in your Bible, and I'm going to read some of these bigger names and, and try to butcher them as much as possible. And uh, for your listening pleasure so the book of the, it starts off the book of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham abraham was the father of isaac and isaac the father of jacob and jacob the father of judah and his brothers and judah the father of perez and zerah by tamar and perez the father of hezron and hezron the father of ram and ram the father of aminadab and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Uh, Salmon uh, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, Obed by Ruth. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. <clears throat> and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Bihud, and Abihud, the father of Elohim, and Elohim, Ele, yeah, Elohim, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Ma, uh, Mathan. And Mathan, the, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had betrothed was had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly but as he considered these things behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying uh, Joseph son of David do not fear <clears throat> to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, as he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, 
but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So there it is. There's a lot of stuff there, and believe it or not, there's a lot to focus on. Mm-hmm. And there are two, in, in the words of President Trump, huge uh, matters of importance. Okay? They're huge. And people just fly over the genealogy and say, listen, I know Jesus was born. This is what happened. I know the story. I've listened, I've listened to Luke. So, But here's the thing. These are huge matters that we need to look at. These are doctrinal matters. These are things that help us understand the whole of Scripture right here. And so often we just go, oh, well, his family tree forked. It's not East Texas. He's forked. It's there. Great. But you don't understand how much else is there. This passage, number one, this passage, and I know there's going to be a lot of words, but... This passage is a vision of God's covenants. This is a vision of God's covenants. If you think about that in that theme passage in verse 17, which I've read to y'all, he said all the generations from Abraham to David, it was 14, from David to the the deportation or the or the they were they were taken to Babylon. Um, was 14 generations, and from that point to Jesus, 14 generations. Now, I'm not a guy who just says, oh, well, we need, a, we need to look at the substance of what 14 generations means. What it means to me is God definitely had a hand in each of these aspects, and nothing goes apart. But this passage is a vision of God's covenants, and I want you to understand, we'll, we'll talk about what is specifically talked about here in just a second. But there, there are generations and there are, there are covenants that most people don't, uh, that, that they don't realize or they don't think about. The first one under A, okay? The first one under A is the covenant of works or the Adamic covenant, meaning Adam plus IC covenant, okay? The covenant of works slash Adamic. That's not a curse word. A-D-A-M-I-C. That means having to do with Adam. Now you might not know this or might not understand this, but the this, this covenant of works is what we find in Genesis 1. Okay? This covenant of works is a very specific covenant. It says, remember, remember in, in Genesis 1, it says, uh, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of air and all that. And he, so he, it, he created the male and female, all those aspects. And then he gave them what? The dominion mandate? And he told them, but also he saw everything was good. Everything that he made, behold, it was very good, and that it was evening and morning. That was the sixth day. He created all these things, right? Well, in Genesis 2, we find a pickup of, of a really spe- uh, specifically on who? The, the creation of man, right? And so he gives in how, how man comes about, how Eve comes about, how woman comes about, all those things. But Jesus had said, 
the Lord, it says, it, I'm sorry, Jesus is it. God, God put it here. It says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord, Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden except of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? There is an aspect. He puts Adam in the garden and Eve, but we'll just look at this. He puts Adam in the garden and he gives him a job, right, to tend it. All right, And then he gives him a command, a very simple command. I want you to tend the garden, but also you can eat of anything that's here except. So when we talk about, when we talk about a covenant of works or this Adamic covenant, what we're talking about is God comes to him. Did Adam make a contract with God? That's the question. No. God comes to him and says, this is the, this is the covenant I'm making with you. You're gonna, I'm going to put you in the garden. You're gonna tend it, and you you're gonna you're gonna work. You, it's work, right? But it's it's a joyous work. Just don't eat from this tree. So we take pleasure. The aspect that's here is we're gonna take pleasure in doing what? We're gonna take pleasure in working and serving God and bringing joy into that. Well, what happens? Genesis three. Well. They uh, they did a work. They were working the garden, and they were doing they were doing things in the garden, but they disobeyed God. They they they. In, in reality, they became like God, just as as what happened, just as the serpent told them, if you eat of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. And they chose to disobey God. They chose to do what they wanted. And so what happens from here, there's this one covenant. It's this, this covenant of works, this covenant of action that God's given them. Well, because of that, we have Genesis 3, the fall of man. And, and it says this, Jesus, oh, Jesus, the Lord says to him, I'm just, I, what? Because of you, the crown is cursed and everything is, all these things. Because of you, have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree, you shall not eat. It curses the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. And now the joy of work and being in covenant with God and pleasing God, even in our act of work, what happens? It's all cursed. Now it's toil. But here's the thing. In the midst of this, there comes another covenant. It's under B. It's a covenant of grace. Believe it or not, the covenant of grace enters Right in the account of the fall. It's a covenant of grace. In verses 14 and 15 of uh, in that covenant of, uh, in Genesis 3, he looks at the serpent and God says to the serpent first, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the feasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, some will say that it's not even about the bruise. They'll even talk about how he will crush your head, or he will do these things. Well, listen very carefully. When we look at this, this is a, I say it's a covenant of grace, because what does God do? In the midst of this, God could have immediately said what? You have sinned against me. I'm done with you. 
wipe you off the face of the earth. But that's not what he does. Right? He didn't do that. God in his grace says, no, you're not going to live, you're no longer going to live in this garden, but you will work and you will still serve and you will still please. It's just going to be much harder. It's going to be a struggle. But everything you do, you're going to do, you're going to do um, by the sweat of your brow. There's grace because God could have wiped him off the face of the earth. And here's the thing, even with a serpent, even with a devil and the temptation here, the one thing that's happened is there'll be a constant reminder of what with the serpent. You have not only you not only have sinned and I've cast you out of heaven, but you have come and you have tempted man, and he has sinned, and from now on there will not just be enmity between me and you, it'll be empty between the image bearer of me and you. Notice that it never said that the, to the serpent, you will take man's life. There's something that's very special here. Because this talk about the seed, or talks about the, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, is something that goes forth and goes forward a little further. So in Hebrews chapter 2, I was, I'm just kind of reading some things for you all tonight. It was it, for it was it says in chapter two verses five through eight it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking it has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take you care for him you made him a little lower than the angels that means he what he humbled himself uh, came, took on flesh you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection to him in subjection under his feet. In verse in chapter 10 of Hebrews, he says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those being sanctified. And we go on to the book of Romans, and especially, listen, listen to this about subjection under his feet, that uh, waiting for everything to be made a footstool underneath his feet. Romans 16.20 says, the God, of, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The covenant of grace enters in here because... Apart from grace is apart from grace is strictly just the wrath of God. So when people ask me why would God choose some people to be saved and not others, my response always comes down to this is why would God choose anyone unto salvation? None of us is worthy. None of us deserves it. But it's his grace, it's his mercy. It's 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 not it's not him knowing that I would one day like him or want to be with him. It's literally that he comes and he saves us. It's a covenant of grace. He saves Adam and Eve. In the cause of their sin, even we find in their own offspring what happens. One of them murders. There's another. When we look at this, I, I, I list the covenant of grace as B. And then I have these numbers that are under. There's other covenants that flow 
under the covenant of grace. One is the Noahic. Now, you know the word Noah, the man Noah? Put Noah and I see after it. That's Noahic covenant. Okay? Imagine this. We think I'm, I'm going to kind of skip some of them. I'm not going to read all these scriptures to you, but I want, us to, I want us to think about this. So we know all the things that Noah did, and we know it took him forever to build this large structure, this large boat, and God brought the animals aboard. He obeys God. Um, when they hit dry land, the first thing he does is Noah builds an altar to the Lord and offers a sacrifice, okay? And God's... God, the aroma of that sacrifice is, hits the nostrils of the Lord, per se. And what God does is he comes back and he says, here's the thing. I want you to what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's kind of like the covenant he made with Adam, recreated, restarted. But he furthers that covenant. And what does he do? We see these in after a rain shower. What is it? He set his what? His rainbow, his bow in the clouds. And what it is is for you to remember that I am making this promise this day. I will never destroy the whole earth by flood again. Right? I And it's also a reminder for him of his promise to us. And he said this covenant is for all people... For all generations. Understand, all people, all generations. He makes this covenant. It's kind of a recreation story. From Noah and his three sons and their wives, eight people in all come forth, all that are. Well, there's also another covenant of grace, part of this grace. A beautiful picture, that was a beautiful picture of God's grace, is that he starts everything over, right? But also that he says, I, I won't ever destroy it the same way. He, the next one is, uh, number two, is the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham plus I-C. Abrahamic covenant. And when we think about, as y'all writing that, if you think about it, in Genesis, God comes to him and he says, I'm going to, I want you to leave your people... And I want to go you to go to a place you've never been. You remember when he when he says just as twelve, he says, "Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you." Imagine this: the Lord speaking to you, saying, "Listen, I want you to get up, get in your car, and start driving. I'll show you where to go. I'll provide you the way there, and all along. But you're going to go somewhere. But you got to leave everybody that you know behind." That's exactly what it was. It wasn't that you're, hey, the other side of this is, it wasn't as if he was driving across the country to another state. We're talking about he's going to another third world country no one's accepted in place of. That kind of that mindset. I don't know where I'm going. I just, I'm being obedient to follow him. He goes on in chapter 15, and that's where he gives him this promise of what? And we'll talk about this promise a little bit more in a moment. He says, he's, he hadn't changed his name. He said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. And he said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's basically a servant. He says, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and says, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. God comes to him and he makes this covenant with him. Right? He makes this promise with him. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham just spoke. You know, Lord, you say you're going to do these things for me, but I don't even have an heir to leave it, leave it behind for. But God says, I'm going to do more than just give you an heir. I'm going to give you generations. We'll come back to the Abrahamic covenant in just a moment, okay? Number three is the Mosaic Covenant. Now, you can't spell Moses and put I-C after this one, but Mosaic, M-O-S-A-I-C, M-O-S-A-I-C Covenant. And simply, if you want to look at the Mosaic Covenant, it's the law of God, right? The simplest way to look at it, and like I said, I'm not going to go through all of this, the Scripture tonight, but look up Exodus 20. It's what? It's the Ten Commandments, Right? God gives him a covenant. Now, here's in interesting enough, right? This is a this is kind of a turn. If you look at the Mosaic covenant, what is it really? It's a we have the story of Noah. We have the account of Noah, and it's like a recreation story. The Mosaic covenant and the law of God is what? It's almost like a a, a covenant of works being recreated as well, right? Oh, it's a life. God gives us a guideline, a way of living that pleases Him, that obeys Him in such a way that we know we're not walking. A, we're not walking down a path without a light, right? Now we thought even the even the Jews, even the Israelites, they believed that the light was the law, but it wasn't, was it? The light is the law is not the light, but it is a guideline. It gives us a hint. It lets us see into the heart and the mind of God and what He expects from us. So no longer like a pagan nation trying to please a, a God that you cannot see, that you cannot understand. God reveals Himself in His nature, His creation, all those things, and He brings it into His law and says, this is how you shall live. And in doing so, this pleases me. And He gives us, if y'all remember as we were walking through the study on the law, we're walking through the study on the law. We have the positive aspects of the law, and you have the negative aspects of the law. And negative is not what we normally think of negative. You shall not steal. That's negative, right? You shall not steal, but what should we do? We should be industrious, and we should work for what we want, and we should be giving more than receiving, and that aspect of how we live our lives. It's a beautiful picture. Okay? So it's God gives us a thing and says, this is how you should live. It gives us that guidebook. It gives us that guideline. It gives us the path unto righteousness. This is what you shall do to please me. Does man do it perfectly? Absolutely not. We're not sinless. But he gives us that. And that's why I wanted to put, put that there for you. The Mosaic Covenant comes. But here's the thing. That's a sign of grace as well, isn't it? 
that God doesn't leave you to try to figure him out and what he expects. What does he do? He reveals his purpose to us. And that is his grace. Y'all also remember what Romans, Romans tells us? That the law makes us what? Conscious of sin. It makes us conscious of our need of grace. We know we're sinners. We know we fall short. We know where to turn. The beauty of it. That covenant of works is not something that we should shy away. So many people shy away from talking about, oh, you're talking about a work salvation. No, I'm not talking about a work salvation. I'm saying this is a covenant God has made with us. He's told us if you don't do these things, what happens? You and your children and your children's children, forward, however many generations are going to be cursed. But God shows love to a thousand generations who love him and keep his commandments. It's a beautiful picture of what is. We also have the Davidic covenant. David plus I see. <laughs> and you're like, well, when did God appear to David and make a covenant with him? I don't remember hearing about this one. Well, God did speak to David. And we'll talk a little bit at the end of this message. It surprises me that God would do anything through David. But in, in, in the book of 2 Samuel, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, you know what David does? He looks around him and he sees his palace. And he says, here I am living in luxury, and God lives in a tent. I want to build him a place to abide. And Nathan looks at him and says, well, if that's what, God, if that's what you feel led to do, go for it. But God comes to him and says, what do you think? I'm, I, I live in places built by the hands of men? That I need a place? And he looks at he says to David, Well, listen, you won't build this for me, but your offspring will. Right? You have the heart. I, I, I remember hearing someone say this this week. They said, How often we look at things and we have the right heart, but God never called us to it. We do things because we're either convicted, we might. We might do a right, a righteous-looking thing, but when we don't do it unto God and hit the plan, that he, the purpose, or the way He has for us to do it, it's not going to succeed. And as beautiful as a plan that David had for this place, for the Ark of the Covenant, and as as I'm sure, in his heart of hearts, he's like, really, I look at my place and I look at my mansion and I have all this, and God's got a tent. God deserves better than a, than a tent. But what if God was satisfied and never wanted more than a tent? Our best intentions for God is not godly. Remember even, even remember when, uh, when uh, you know, in one moment, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, right? And the next moment he said, no, 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 no. You're not going to be crucified. He calls him Satan, right? He turns around and says the opposite. It's these aspects of, you're, yes, you're doing it, you're, in, in, you're, you're trying to do it in such a beautiful way, but it's not what God intends. 
There's a Davidic covenant. And one part of this covenant that he makes, it says, listen, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it a different way. But here's the other thing. He tells David, this is the part of the covenant. He says, your, show, your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke this to David. What it says is that David's throne will be established forever. And this leads to the last covenant, or which, the, which is five, is called the new covenant. See, here's the thing. Grace did not show up in the New Testament under the New Covenant. Grace is fulfilled in Jesus Christ under the New Covenant. God has been working His grace and His mercy from the moment that man, Adam and Eve fell in sin in the garden. He has continued to show mercy and grace. And not only does he do that, he leads the way all the way unto the point that we have Jesus come. In Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand uh, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning the Son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. goes on in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. We've seen it coming. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Jesus was the one prophesied beforehand from the line of David. What does that tell us then about Jesus? Jesus is going to go on to be called what? A king of kings, correct? You know, prior to this moment, although many a man might want to turn to his king for salvation... Salvation, we find in Scripture, comes from the Lord. But here God sends someone in the line of David to be a king. To rule and reign, but not like earthly kings. To save His people, and we'll get to this, from their sin. This passage, C, we're going to move to C. This passage stresses the covenant of promise to the new covenant. So when we look at this passage of Scripture in Matthew, what does it talk about? It talks about from Abraham, right? All Abraham to Jesus. 
Now, notice it doesn't talk about the Mosaic Covenant, although we know in the life of Christ, he talked a lot about the Mosaic Covenant and how to truly keep the law. We don't hear much about the Noahic Covenant. It's prior, but listen, even though the Noahic Covenant's there, we're talking about the promise. This is when grace sets its feet and begins the forward motion towards salvation of God's people, salvation of man. It's the, it's, it's the pinnacle of what's coming, looking forward to the Son of Man coming and saving us from our sins. Why do I put such an emphasis there? Because in that theme passage of Matthew 1, in verse 21, it says, She will bear a son. Mary, talking about Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. Do we go back into Scripture and we talk about the first Adam condemned all men to sin because of his sin? The second Adam comes and saves them. John 1 is a beautiful picture. John 1 verses 1 through 18, we look at that and we talk about how the Word becomes flesh and we've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's verse 14. It goes on in verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of all things comes through Jesus John 3, 16-21, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The beautiful picture of who he is. Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Second thing, and this is a this is kind of a change of gears to an extent, but not. This passage is evidence that God uses fallible people to fulfill his purpose. And this is going to maybe strike you a little bit. It might strike up other conversations for parents later. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about this. This passage is evidence that God uses fallible people to fulfill His purpose. Let's be reminded, God can use anyone at any time for anything. If He can use a donkey, no pun intended, <laughs> Um, if he can use a donkey, he can use anyone. But there's, under A, I'm not going to read all the scripture because we read it. Under A, there's five men, women mentioned who God used in this passage. By the way, without talking this, having a discussion on patriarchy or patriarchal or anything, most of things that are discussed as we saw through this passage of Scripture, most genealogies, you don't see the wives mentioned often, do you? 
Did you notice all of a sudden, every once in a while, this woman's name kept jumping up? Interesting, there's five women mentioned in this whole passage. Now, what we're going to discuss in this just briefly is going to prove this point and the reason what we need to look at, okay? Why we need to look at things in a light, a different light. There's five women mentioned who God used here. The first one is Tamar, T-A-M-A-R, which you can find in the theme passage. She slept with her father-in-law. He thought she was a prostitute. Um, that was Judah who did that. So the first one is Tamar. And from Tamar... came two people, two children, in the line of Jesus. Okay? I'm just giving you this because people who don't know in Scripture will read things like this and want to mis misuse and abuse things. But I want you to understand, something happened. By the way, the law is not given yet. This would have been, they've both been put to death under the law. Right? Secondly, Rahab. Rahab, R-A-H-A-B. She was a prostitute that hid the spies before coming into Jericho and sent the, sent the people the opposite way from where the spies had come. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, she was the mother to Boaz. Important to know this. The third one is Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess widow from a pagan country, and she was redeemed by Boaz. He's a picture of our kinsman redeemer. I wish I could go into, I've preached on it before, but the beauty of what happened there. She had nothing, but she, she, she had married into a family from the line of David, by the way. It comes from the, this, along this line from Abraham coming this way. God used someone who slept with her father-in-law. God used someone who used to be a prostitute. God used a pagan. Fourthly, Bathsheba. By the way, here in this passage, you will not see Bathsheba's name. That's the wife, because uh, that was by Uriah's wife. When David, Uriah's wife is Bathsheba. And David saw her bathing, and he he called her up and went into her and committed adultery. And when, when she became pregnant, this is David the king, right? She became pregnant. He didn't want to put the baby to death. He, he put her husband on the front lines and he was killed in battle. So basically, David slept with another man's wife and then had her husband killed. By the way, this is the line of Jesus. I want to share something with you before I get to the last one. So many people 
try to talk about the pure lines of the Israelites. But from the, the account of full history, from Adam on, God uses fallible people not because of who they are, but because of who He is. It's a picture. It's a beautiful picture. This is why I want us to be reminded when people do not want to yield and submit to a holy God, they do not want to surrender to Him in any way, or they don't think God would ever accept them, He looks at it and says, Listen, I... Have you, have you seen the history of my people? Fallible people. Sinful people. Now, did God, now, all these accounts something that God glorifies? Absolutely not. Sin is not glorified by God. But what do we see? These are pictures of God's grace delivered. Time and time again. God using fallible people. And then here's the last one. Mary. Now we all, I'm going to say this right now, beyond what the Catholics believe, and it came along way, way later, they taught, talked about the infallibility of Mary. The perpetual virgin, no, she had other kids, so she did not keep her virginity, obviously. Um, but let me say this. Mary, Mary is an example. The culture would have put her to death. Remember, that's why Joseph was, because he was an honorable man, he was going to divorce her quietly. That's when the angel comes to him. So, but here's the thing. I want to read Luke, the book of Luke, and just 26 through 38 of that. And I want you to hear how God looks at things, how men see things, and how God sees them. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, saying, and tried to discern, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is God's fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. This is God's fulfillment of more than that. God will give him it. He is, is of the house of Jacob. He is of the line of David. And when we look at this aspect, of, it's a promise. It's a, it's a fulfillment of the promise that God gave to what? It gave to Abraham. He brings forward all the way into David, and now we see the fulfillment in the new covenant in Jesus Christ that's coming. And the angel, uh, she said, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? 
The angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Israel, uh, Israel, Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, No way, Jose. Shove off. Is that what she said? Nope. She says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. See, here's the beauty of it. In all those circumstances, Tamar never had a child. She was not able to have a child by, by, uh, by uh, Judah's sons. And in the process, whether she tricked or she did wrong or whatever you want to say, this happened. But God still brought the fruit from that and used the fruit of that to bring forth the line of Jesus. When we look at Rahab, yes, she was a pagan. By the way, a pagan again in, a, in, in, the, in Jericho. And what happens? Because of her act, because she said, if you will show favor, if you will just save the lives of me and my family, I'll do this for you. And what happens? They said, just make sure all your family's inside the doors of this house. And what happens? She, she marries an Israelite. Right? And Boaz comes from that. Ruth is, is a pagan, a Moabitess. She's widowed because these Israelites went to a foreign country to find, try to find food in the midst of a famine. And she comes back and all of their husbands have died while gone. And she comes back. It's a beautiful picture of just because of these things. She submits herself both to God and his, his words to his people and to Boaz in this thing. She is being treated like a widow. She's being treated like a foreigner. And she comes and Boaz redeems her, marries her, and from her comes the line of David, comes the line of Christ. We look at Bathsheba. Bathsheba did nothing wrong. A man in power who's supposed to be a godly king did a horrible thing. And in the midst of this, not only was this horrible act done, she becomes pregnant. And in telling him she's pregnant, because things don't happen a certain way, he ends up sending her husband to be murdered. So she's now been used and abused. She's now has is without a, a husband. She was now a widow because of someone else's actions. You know what happens from that? The baby dies. Yeah. But from this line, but this from this line comes a beautiful thing. Salvation doesn't come from a king. It doesn't come from a prophet. What does it come? It comes from the Lord. And then we have Mary. 
<laughs> God found favor in her, this young woman, very young woman, who's done everything right. She's betrothed to her husband. She's not, she's not been married yet, but she's basically engaged with promise. And God says, I've chosen you to bear my son. And this thing, the beautiful blessedness of this all, God brings about what he had promised, not only from the line of David, not only the promise of Abraham, from, but from Genesis chapter 3, when he told the serpent, her seed will bruise your head. Here's the thing about this, is no matter how much Satan has tried, no matter how he would look forward to trying to do things, what happens? He is a defeated foe. He was defeated before he was cast from the heavens. He's been defeated since he brought sin into this world and tempted man to sin. And here's the thing. He has an eternal place prepared for him and his angels. And that is the pit of hell. But thanks be to God, that is not the place for all of us. Thanks be to God that from this beautiful story, this beautiful genealogy alone, we can find God's covenant of grace and also a vision for us to see that God uses fallible people like you and I to do mighty things. When we look at all these chapters that are following, we'll be in chapter 2. I don't know that we'll do the whole chapter, but we'll be in chapter 2 next week. When we look at this, look and say, God, what would you send me to do? What are you saying to me in this story? It's not written to you. It's not written about you. But here's the thing. What is it? It's for you. Look and see how we might respond today to a similar act. And by the way, it's happening today just a little bit differently. And you get to you have a choice. Do you do you do you just overlook it and you just move on to the next subject because you know what? It, it's not affecting you. It's not your choice. It's not your you would have done. I think about Chinese Christians. I think about other countries where have limited childbirth to one child. And that second child comes along. Or, how about this? Ladies, y'all love this. The firstborn's a female, so they just leave them and abandon them in the streets because they want a male. Because you can only have one child. Look to chapter 2 and see where do, where do we fit? How does this apply to today? How can we see God's vision for us in this? Just this little a bit, just a genealogy has laid out a beautiful path for us to see what God can do. And that's my challenge for you this week. Look at it in light of that. Read God's Word in the context of what happened and how it was applied then. But also look for, look for the, the lighted path that He has for us to walk down in it. And in that process, may we grow in our faith and may we please God. As we walk in His grace, 
as we walk in our trust and obedience to his word in all things. Why don't you pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for this day. I know this is a long message to lay down a foundation, but Lord God, it's worth it. it it's a beautiful picture, look both at your covenants, but also, Lord God, to look at, um, look at what you've done throughout all of this time. From the time that we received the covenant of promise on, to see the fulfillment in Christ Jesus and the beauty of, of, of a life lived intentionally to, be, to die for, the, for those who are His. He's come to save His people from their sin. Well, my prayer today is that we will yield to these actions, yield to these things. And Lord God, that we will look for these, as I said, look for the opportunities to apply them today. And Lord, know that no matter what, God, you don't leave us where we're at. Lord God, you continue to move us to where you would have us to be. Lord God, you call us to die to ourselves, to live for you. Lord God, to die to our sin and to take up your cross and follow you in obedience. Lord, that's my prayer. That's my prayer today, that we'll see the small things and walk in obedience to them as we look forward to the weeks ahead, the many weeks ahead as we walk through this beautiful book. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.